Well, we welcome all of you who are joining us online, as well as those of you who are gathered here at Central Campus, along with others of you gathered at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, in South Calgary, in Bridgeland, and at Bearspaw. D.L. Moody once said, the world has yet to see what God can do through a person who is totally dedicated to him. That is the focus of the final section of our study here in Romans. What the Christian life looks like when it is totally surrendered to Jesus Christ. You may recall the book of Romans can be divided into five key themes, all starting with the letter S. In the first few chapters, we deal, dealt with sin. The next three chapters deal with the issue of salvation and sanctification. And then we looked at the sovereignty of God. And we come now to the final section, that of service, or how we can live for God and serve Him now that we know Him personally and are spiritually alive in Christ. Chapter 12 marks a turning point. The first 11 chapters deal with what we believe about the truth of the gospel. The last five chapters deal uh, with how we live out the truth of the gospel. You see, believing and behavior go hand in hand. As far as God is concerned, you can't have one without the other. Belief that doesn't impact behavior is a dead belief. The Apostle James put it this way, that faith without works is dead. And that is what Paul addresses here in Romans 12. He wants us to understand that the evidence that we are truly alive in Christ, that we are truly Christians, is that the spirit and the life of Jesus Christ will be seen in our attitudes and in our behaviors. And so if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand and join me in reading the first two verses of Romans 12 together. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word and its instruction for life. And Lord, as we now look at these verses that we have just um, um, recited together, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to more fully understand what it is you're saying to us. And Lord, you give us the courage to respond the way that you would have us to, to be who you want us to be and to do what you are calling us to do. I pray this all in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> you know, over the years, I've had hundreds of people ask me, how can I know God's will for my life. They want to know, is it God's will for them to live in Calgary or to move to Winnipeg? We won't comment on that. Uh, should, but seriously, should I go into teaching or into pastoral ministry? 
Or how do I know whether it's God's will that I marry this particular individual? Now, sometimes God's will is spelled out clearly in his word. For example, when it comes to selecting a marriage partner, 2 Corinthians 6.14 calls us to be on the same page spiritually with the person that we marry. Actor Adam Sandler, he tells of a humorous, a humorous incident that happened in his life. Uh, his, his, and this, is, this happened while he was dating. Uh, his Jewish father said to him, My son, I have only one request. Please marry a girl who has the same belief as the family. Andler th- uh, Sandler thought for a moment, and then he responded saying, Dad, how can you ask me to marry someone with the same belief as you and the family have? Why would I want to marry a girl who thinks I'm a schmuck? But seriously, Adam's father had the right idea. God's will is that we be spiritually compatible with the person that we marry. So that is clear. But in other matters, God's will isn't so easily discerned. And so when people ask me about God's will for their lives, I tell people essentially what Paul says here in the passage we just read together. God's will for your life and my life isn't so much about you turning left or right at the next intersection of your life. It's, it's not so much about wh- whether you live in Calgary or somewhere else, or whether you um, are a pastor or a plumber. God's fundamental will, his general will for you and for me, is that we would love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that he would be the object, that he and only he would be the object of our highest affection. Now, here in Romans 12, Paul helps us to understand what that means practically. At the most basic level, God's will is that we would be devoted to three things. First, that we would offer our body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Second, that we would not conform to the pattern of this world. And thirdly, that we would be transformed from the inside out by the renewing of our mind. And in verse 2, Paul essentially says, when you are faithfully devoted to living out these three areas, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. In (coughs) In other words, then you will be in a place spiritually to better discern what God's will is in the more specific issues you're grappling with in your life, like what his will is regarding your career or where he would have you invest your life and where he'd have you serve or where you live. So let me unpack these a little more. First of all, based on verse 1, God's will is is that we would offer our body as a living sacrifice. Now notice Paul doesn't say, therefore I command you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. No, he says, therefore I urge you, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. He's saying, in light of everything that I've taught in the first 11 chapters, that God by his grace and through the death and resurrection of his only son Jesus, 
not only made a way for you to become a friend of God, but made a way for you to be saved from being eternally separated from God. In light of all of that, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Before Paul tells us how to live in Christ, he reminds us of the why we want to live the way of Christ. Make no mistake, our motives matter to God. And so they need to matter to us as well. You see, religion says, if I obey God, I will be accepted. I hope I will be accepted and saved by God. On the other hand, Christianity says, because I am already accepted and saved by God through faith in Jesus Christ, I want to follow and obey my Lord. If you obey God in order to be accepted and hopefully saved by him, you will be a miserable person. And you will live a life of continual fear and continual guilt because you will always wonder if you've done enough to earn God's acceptance, his favor, and of course his salvation. On the other hand, when you understand that in God's eyes and in the eternal realm, that you are saved and you are headed for heaven, not on the basis of anything that you've done, but on the basis of what Christ did for you and me on the cross of Calvary, you will no longer be motivated to be a living sacrifice out of fear or out of guilt, but out of a love for Jesus and out of gratitude to Jesus for making a way for you to be redeemed. And folks, that changes everything in terms of your perspective in life as a Christian. Now, of course, we all have days. And sometimes, weeks and months, we don't feel like following him. That can happen. It doesn't mean that you're not a Christ follower. Those of you who are married, you don't always feel loving and passionate towards your spouse. But here's the thing. If the direction of your heart and your life is such that something or someone other than Jesus is the object of your highest affection and you consistently have no desire to follow, to obey, or to serve him, then you need to examine whether in fact you have sincerely put your trust in Jesus if in fact you are truly saved because something's not right. So what does it mean to give your body as a living sacrifice? Well, it means more than to just give your body. It means to dedicate yourself totally to God, all that you are. It means that you're all in. And you're saying, Lord, you get all of me, not just a couple hours a week. No, you get all of me full time, all the time. You don't just get a portion of my money or a portion of my talents. No, all that I have is yours. I hold them with an open hand for your use. 
Now, when Paul talks about being a living sacrifice, he's talking, he's taking us back to the Old Testament, to those times when animals were offered on the altar to God in a person's place. Of the many kinds of sacrifices made in that day, the one that Paul's referring to in this passage is the whole burnt offering. This is where a person took the best lamb from their flock, the one that would fetch the highest dollar in the marketplace, and would sacrifice it to the Lord. The offering was totally burned, representing total devotion to God. You see, having one of your animals sacrificed in those days was a costly proposition. In our day, it would have the same impact as us giving God anywhere between two to three months of our income every year, which would be somewhere between 17% to 25% of our annual income. Do the math, friends. This was no small sacrifice. Now, sadly, human beings, being human beings, the scriptures indicate that with the passing of time, some people began to rationalize the need to give their best to God and had the gall to offer the Lord a lamb that was kind of on its last legs. You know, one that got run over by the herd or the one that got infected with a virus, we won't mention which one, and wasn't worth a dime in the marketplace. And Malachi 1 describes how God felt about that. God essentially says, when you give me what's left over, when you give me your loose change instead of the full tithe, you are not only dishonoring me in your heart and robbing me of all that I've given to you in the first place, but you're telling me that the temporary things of life matter more to you than I do. And I will not receive this or bless this. And so make no mistake, church. God wants our best because he gave us his best, Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus died for our sins, he did so once for all, which means the sacrificial system of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant is no longer needed. But there is still the New Testament or the New Covenant sacrificial system. Did you know that? Which is not a sacrifice that we give in order to atone for our sins, but is a sacrifice that we give because Jesus atoned for our sins. In the New Testament sacrificial system, God does not ask us to bring our most prized animal or possession to be killed and to be burnt on the altar. No, he asks us to give ourselves, to put ourselves on the altar, to commit to living a life of total devotion to Jesus Christ. This is what Paul means when he says that our living sacrifice is holy and pleasing to God. Holy means I am, it doesn't mean perfection in this particular passage. No, it means I am setting my life apart to be totally committed and dedicated to the Lord and to be available to Him. This is a living sacrifice 
that is holy and pleasing to God. Now, Paul goes on to say, offering your body as a living sacrifice in the way that we've talked about is actually our true and proper worship. God says, you're not worshiping me. You're not honoring me if you're not all in. If you're only giving me a little of what's left over. Furthermore, true worship is not limited to a worship service like this either. True worship happens Anytime you surrender to God and you do what God calls you to do, whether it's faithfully, to the best of your ability, doing your job, doing your work at the office or at home or wherever it is God calls you to exercise the talents and gifts he's given to you or using the talents and the spiritual gifts he's given you to volunteer in a ministry of the church or... or, to to serve a neighbor, or to give to someone who's in need. All of these are an act of worship. And so first of all, God's will is that we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to him. Secondly, verse 2 tells us, God's will is that we not conform to the pattern of this world. Now the word conform means to think what everyone else thinks, to do what everyone else does. The word world that's used in this verse means an age, like the spirit of this age. Today, we would use the word culture or our contemporary culture. So part of what Paul is saying here is be careful not to indiscriminately think and act like everyone else in our culture. For example... As I mentioned a few weeks ago, even if most people in our culture spend hours of their free time watching television or scrolling through social media on their smartphones, this is a call to be different, to invest more of your time in your life loving and serving people, praying for people, as our Lord calls us to. Now notice that there's another word in this sentence. The word pattern. Do not conform to the pattern of this world. So what does that word mean? The word pattern points to something much deeper, something that is not easily discernible at first. This is referring to the dominant worldview of our culture that surrounds us on every side and primarily through the media hammers its philosophy of life into our thinking and into our minds. The pattern of our culture can change appearance. It can be repackaged from time to time, from generation to generation, but at its core, it's always the same. So what is the pattern of this world? Well, it's all about self. And it's all about advancing self. I mean, think about it. Why do people reject God or why do people replace God with temporary earthly idols or or why do people keep God at arm's length? Because they want to be in charge of their own lives and they don't want God or anyone else telling them how to live their lives. They want to be independent, they want to be autonomous and they want to call their own shots. That's the pattern of our culture. 
And you see that pattern all the way down through history. It's all about me. It's all about my personal happiness. It's all about how can I advance myself? Yeah, I'll come to your event. I'll come to this worship service or this church or whatever. What can I get out of this? I'm not coming anymore because I'm not getting anything out of it. What's in it for me? How can I work this for my benefit? The fruit of this self-centered way of thinking is evident in our world. It's rivalry and competition between people. It's getting ahead of the other person. It's grabbing what is mine before someone else does. It's hoarding money. It's hoarding stuff that I don't even need or even want. Even if it means that others will be hungry or hurting because of my greed and my selfishness. Today it includes such things as canceling, labeling, shaming, demonizing those that we don't agree with or who don't agree with us. And so when Paul says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, he's saying, be alert and discerning. So you do not get sucked into this me-centered way of thinking because the pattern of self-centeredness that we see in our culture brings heartache, it brings ruin, division, and even disaster into our lives, into our relationships, and into our homes. Be especially discerning of all forms of media and the subtle messages that they are giving to promote an unbiblical worldview and agenda. Like, look out for number one. I mean, we're going to die tomorrow anyway, so indulge yourself completely. Live it up for today. Get all you can for yourself. Those messages are being pounded into our thinking. You know, if I came into your house and I started saying those kind of things to you and your family... Or perhaps even more graphically, started telling you and your family lewd stories in graphic detail that included adultery, sexual immorality, and violence. I used profanity every two or three words. You wouldn't stand for it. I mean, you'd kick me out of your house. And yet some people regularly watch this stuff on TV. And in some cases allow their children to watch this kind of stuff on television. The Apostle Paul warns us to be alert to this. To not be conformed to the self-centered, hedonistic pattern or mindset of our culture. I can tell you from personal experience, it can happen. You can get sucked into its sinister vortex without even realizing. Now it's important that I give two caveats at this point. First of all, as you've heard me say more than once, we're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about direction. We all conform at times to the pattern of this world. What Paul is challenging us on is this. Is the direction of my heart 
is the direction of my mind and my life, is it headed to being more like Christ or to being more like my culture? And so remember, it's about direction, not perfection. And the second caveat is this. God isn't calling us to isolate ourselves. Far from it. He's not calling us to to isolate ourselves from the world or the influence of the world. He wants us to live in the world, but not to become one with the world or just be like the world. He calls us to be salt and light in a very dark world. And that's going to involve thinking counterculturally, and yes, it's going to involve us living counterculturally. The way that Christ calls us to live is not going to make sense to a whole lot of people in our culture. You give how much to the church? Are you kidding me? And so God's will is that we offer our bodies as living sacrifices to him and that we not conform to the pattern of this world. And then thirdly, his will is that we be transformed by the renewing of our mind. In Romans 6 to 8, those of you who have been following along in this series, you'll remember that we learned when you put your faith in Jesus Christ in the spirit realm, Jesus invades your life and the spiritual part of you becomes alive and you become a new creation in Christ Jesus. You are forgiven and God sees you as righteous and as complete in him. However, that doesn't mean that your behavior in the earthly realm will instantly be perfect. And that is because your body and your soul, which you'll recall I called Mr. Sin, but your body and soul has been conformed to the pattern of this world all of your life and now needs to be transformed into the image of Christ. That's called sanctification, and it's a lifelong journey. In computer language, you need to reprogram your mind, or your mind needs to be reprogrammed to to learn and to think differently so you see life the way that God sees it. And Christ will transform you step by step if you surrender your life to him. And as Paul says here, if you will renew your mind with the truth and the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, but we have the mind of Christ. To have the mind of Christ means you see life, all of it, the good, the bad, the ugly, from the perspective of Jesus Christ. To have the mind of Christ means that you believe this world is not your uh, eternal home, that you're just passing through And that at the end of the day, what's going to really matter in the eyes of God is how faithful you were with what God gave you and trusted to you and how faithful you were as his representative on this planet. You know, recently someone told me about a friend um, from another city who told her that after the COVID restrictions were lifted, she and her husband made a decision to simplify their life and to make more time for each other and for their family. And a big part of that decision involved not going back to their church to worship and to serve, and not going back to their small community group. Now, after being away, 
from church and their small group for now adding up to over three years. She shared how during a time of reflection, she was shocked to realize how much her spiritual life and the spiritual life of her marriage and family had cooled. Her heart to know God more intimately, to to be in the word, to follow him, had diminished dramatically. She noticed how much of their conversations centered around things they wanted to buy, things they wanted to do, places they wanted to visit, and a little bit about what they were watching on television. But there was hardly any reference to the Lord or to spiritual things. There was no praying except at mealtime. She was troubled by how spiritually lethargic and self-absorbed that they had become as a family, with little concern for others and even less concern to share their love for Jesus with others. You see, they didn't realize it at first, but a combination of their decision to replace their spiritual disciplines and to replace their spiritual community with a greater focus on comfort and other interests, along with the messages and the entertainment they were exposing their minds to, was slowly transforming them not to be more like Christ, but to be conformed to the me-centered pattern of our culture. Their minds were slowly being renewed with the thinking and the ways of our culture rather than with the truth and the way of Christ. So how do we prevent this from happening in our lives as Christians? In other words, how do we practically renew our minds in Christ Jesus? Well, one way is to get into the Bible. Read it. Meditate on it. Study it. Memorize it. Pray it back to God. It's also important to regularly attend and seriously engage in worship services like this where we are regularly reminded of who God is and his love for us and his promises to us through a time of praise and worship and also where we devote time to teaching the Bible rather than man's ideas and we are challenged to ask and to respond to the questions of what is God saying to you? And what are you going to do about it? This is also why we challenge everyone to meet with other believers, to care and to pray for each other, but also in the words of Hebrews 10, verse 24, to encourage one another and to spur one another on toward love and good deeds, to live the way of Jesus and to do what the Spirit is calling us to do. When we read and study and meditate on the Scriptures, when we hear them taught and then together As the body of Christ, we we challenge each other to live them out in our lives. We are being transformed from the inside out to be like Jesus through the renewing of our mind. And as we do, we will know the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God and avoid sliding into the ditch of conforming to the pattern of this world. You know, earlier I pointed out that God's will for you and me is to love him with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Now, we will never do that perfectly. But if our heart is pointed, as I just pointed out, if our heart is pointed in that direction, 
God is pleased. And the Apostle Paul says it is our true and proper worship. On the other hand, nothing breaks the heart of God more than the sin of idolatry or when we worship the things that God created more than him. And that is because he knows when we worship and adore anything or anyone more than him, we are headed not only for major disappointment and despair one day because our idols will not come through for us in the end. You can count on that. But also because, as I said earlier, if we are persistently worshiping idols rather than the Lord, it is possible that we have never truly committed our life to the Lord. We've never truly embraced His saving grace. And therefore, we face eternity without Him. And so given the seriousness of this, I want to wrap up today by giving us a little idolatry detection test. I came across this uh, uh, through Dr. J.D. Greer. And so grab a pen and paper if you have one with you, or like so many others in the other services, pull out your smartphone and get these questions written down, or like some did, take pictures, you know, um, whatever it works for you. And these questions will help serve, they will serve to help you to identify if idolatry is worming its way into your life. Get the questions down and I want to challenge you to take these home with you and I want you to meditate on this all week on these questions because God's going to reveal some things to you if you ask him to through these questions that will be incredibly eye-opening. I've already had people respond to me that this has been happening to them as they've been reflecting on this. Question number one. The thing that I'd be most worried about losing is... What are you most worried about losing? Write down your answer. It could be family. It could be marriage. It could be money. It could be success. It could be reputation. It could be freedom. If you are consumed with fear or your mind is preoccupied with the prospect of losing whatever it is you wrote down, it's possible that that might be an idol in your life. Question number two. The thing I'd be most worried about never attaining is. Is it riches? Fame? Is it your kids being successful? Is it your kids turning out well? If you're single, is it a fear about never getting married? For example, if you believe your life will be pointless and meaningless and or that you will never be happy or content in life if you don't attain whatever it is you wrote down to this question, then this may be an idol in your life. Dr. Greer writes, for me, a lot of my worries centered around not succeeding in my career. I thought, if I'm a failure in my career, then I have little worth as a man. He says, before I dealt with this idol in my life, my moods were always tied to how well my career was going. What about you? Question number three. Throughout your life, what have you been most willing to sacrifice for? What have you been most willing to sacrifice for? Is it your children? 
Is it a relationship? Is it your work or career? See, worship and sacrifice always go hand in hand. You are willing to sacrifice and gain the favor of whatever it is you truly worship. Again, Greer says, for me, I sacrificed much for success. I had a propensity to overwork because I wanted to be successful because I wanted to be admired by others. Question number four. What has made you the most bitter in life? Bitterness and the inability to forgive God or others almost always points to an idol in our lives. For example, are you angry or bitter at God because a loved one died that you really cared about? Or because a romantic relationship that meant the world to you fell apart? Or because you were terminated from a job that you sacrificed almost everything for or were passed over for a promotion that you felt you deserved and wanted so badly? And or because you were never recognized for all that you did? Think of your greatest hurt and disappointment and what's behind that hurt and that disappointment and you will often find an idol. Think of a person you harbor resentment toward that you can't forgive and ask what is behind that resentment and often you will find an idol. Question five. Whose approval do you seek? Your father? Your mother? Your spouse? A friend? A mentor? A coach? A boss? People at work? Whoever it is, what kind of approval are you craving to receive from them? Is it that they like you? That they look up to you, respect you, speak well of you, are proud of you? What is it? Whatever it is, may be an idol in your life and may be robbing you of a lot of peace and contentment in life. Now to be clear, many of these in themselves are not a problem. It's when they begin to become more important and to consume so much of our emotional energy in relation to our, our, our relationship with God that they begin to mess with us and lead us down a path of frustration, emptiness, and misery. But remember this, whatever you hold back, whatever you fail to give to God will be the source of your greatest heartache, your greatest grief, frustration, greatest disappointment and hurt. You know, almost every week, I have a conversation with someone who is shell-shocked. In fact, I had a conversation just after this last service with someone of having suddenly realized that what they put their trust in, what they staked their lives in, didn't come through for them. And they are devastated. One by one, people are confronted with the painful reality that parents, that spouses, that children, that bosses, that well-planned lives don't always come through for us. And all of this leads sincere people to cry out, who can I really count on in this life? Where can I pin my hopes? Where can I focus the affections and the longings of my heart? Well, here in Romans, elsewhere in Scripture, 
The answer is, you can place your trust in God and God alone. You do not waste your affections. You do not waste your worship. You do not waste your life. When you love and trust the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, when I was younger, I I didn't have the opportunity to take swimming lessons. And I remember thinking for the longest time that the constitution of my body was such that I would never be able to float. Because whenever I was in deep water that was taller than I was, I would sink. I used to admire those who could float on their back for long periods of time. Well, one day someone who knew, it, knew how to swim well said to me, you know, don't fight the water. Lay back on the water very slowly and trust the water to actually hold you up. And so I tried it. And to my amazement, I found myself floating. Just barely, mind you, but I was floating. I wasn't sinking. And the key was to stop fighting the water and instead to surrender to it. Friend, don't fight God. Please, don't fight God. Because when you do, you're going to go under. Instead, surrender completely to Him. Offer your body, offer your all as a living sacrifice to Him. When God asks us to be a living sacrifice, He's not asking us to die physically the way that a lamb did in the place of its master. No, He's asking us to live as though we have died. Died to worshiping the temporary counterfeit gods of this world. Died to our pride and our ego. Died to our rights and what we think we deserve. See, the problem with a living sacrifice is that you've probably noticed this in your life. A living sacrifice can crawl off the altar, can it? And that's why it has to be a daily sacrifice, which means every morning, As you get out of bed, thank the Lord for being with you. Ask him to do your day with you. Open your hands to him. Surrender yourself anew to him and just say, Lord, here I am. I belong to you. I offer myself to you as a living sacrifice. Take me and use me in whatever way you want. And when you do this daily, you will not only know the peace of God, but you'll experience the miracle of his grace again and again as God carries you and empowers you and keeps you afloat emotionally and spiritually to do what you cannot do in your own strength. And as you do, in the words of the Apostle Paul here in verses 1 and 2, you will know that your life is holy, set apart, and pleasing to God. And you will also know that you are in the center of his good, pleasing, and perfect will for your life. May it be so to the glory of God and for the sake of the world that so desperately needs the Jesus that we know and love. Would you just bow your heads for a moment?
And just ask yourself, Lord, just ask the Lord right now, Lord, what is it that you're saying to me through this time together? And Lord, what is it that you're calling me to do about it?